You've selected a show from the Podcast Jukebox, a DIY podcast network. We're ruled by superstitions all the time. And anything can evolve into one. Always parking on a certain side of the street. Because the other side of the street is the one that gets cleaned more often in Manhattan. Could eventually evolve into, this is the luckier side of the street to park on. It's it's simple. Like Superstitions evolve out of simple, pragmatic things. They loop back into simple, pragmatic things. Hello and welcome to Drinks With God, a podcast about alternative theological experiences, death, and life. All of the following content is based on each interviewee's own personal experiences and is meant to be educational, not confrontational. side was, when you look at a possession case, you have to look at whether or not the case is functionally valid. The reality of the case is, you may be dealing with a spiritual experience or a spiritual phenomenon, or you could be dealing with a psychological phenomenon. You could be dealing with a disassociative experience. That's not as important as, is the experience self-contained, fully valid, for the person having the experience and the people around them. If that's the case, then it's a possession. It might be mental illness, it might be spiritual, it's still a possession. Functionally, it's a possession. And, you know, it's interesting to see how they do it because they look at that. What's the final output? Is the final output functionally possession? Yes. Okay, treat it like possession. Acknowledge that it might be psychological, spiritual, or psycho-spiritual. But it's a possession. The end result is that it's a possession. How the practitioner got there is a different thing. Um, actually, before we go too much deeper on this, could you just real quick, for our audience, I know Asatru is a much more common version of Northern European uh, folk. Sure, Asatru or Asatru, as it would properly be pronounced if you were speaking Old Norse, is basically a modern reconstruction of the indigenous northern European religions that were common to Norway, Denmark, Sweden, Scandinavia. And formed Sith? An attempt at reconstructing the original. Yeah. So it's... And in the very first episode I put out, we talked about doing hardcore reconstructionism as opposed to this feels right, this is roughly working with it. Right. So, yeah. And Alcetru works for many people. It's... It's a great religion. I don't have a problem with it. It doesn't fit me because I don't want, and I'm going to get slightly personal here, but I don't want a version of it built and codified in the 50s and 60s by a bunch of guys like Steve McNallan to rule my life. I want my research into the source materials, the archaeology, and the culture itself to guide what I'm doing. Now, that said, the roots are the same. Fornsed focuses on the oral tradition and tradition itself, what's been handed down from generation to generation, primarily in Iceland, but also throughout the rest of Northern Europe. Ausatru is a modern-day reconstruction that has a lot of roots in both Catholicism and Wicca. And if you're coming from a Catholic or a Christian religion, or you're coming from neo-paganism like Wicca, and you're making the transition into an ancestral religion, Ausatru is probably the better fit for you. If you're coming from a place where Christianity or modern religious constraints were not that big in your life growing up or formatively, Fornseth will probably fit better. And a note on pronunciation, you have Fornseth, Fornseth, and Fornseth. They're interchangeable. It depends on whether you're standing in Norway, Denmark, or Scandinavia. Thank you. And uh, back to the Jesuits. <laughs> so um, I know a lot about the Jesuits. The yeah. Jesuits were responsible for a lot of my theological training. Um, yeah, that's why I'm happy to bring them up. Yeah. Um, brilliant, brilliant people. 
in most Jesuit missions, in order to become a Jesuit monk, you must have at least one doctorate. That's something that a lot of people don't necessarily know or understand about Catholicism. There are highly specialized forms of Catholicism, and the Jesuit priests and monks are among them. And the reason that the Jesuits are so important to me is in my study of ecstatic experience, of course I ran into possession, um, especially with my roots, and I wanted to look at what was going on on the other side. What did the Catholics believe? What did the Protestants believe? What did Christianity believe when it came to possession? And I was immediately, when I dealt with the Catholics, referred to a Jesuit mission because when a Catholic priest, all the way up to a bishop, decides that an exorcism needs to be formed, a Jesuit has to sign off on it, and the Jesuit has to have their PhD in psychology. Exorcisms don't happen at random for these folks. The consulting priest is a Jesuit scholar with a background in psychology or psychiatry before anybody makes a move. And that fascinated me. And I, I actually, it's funny, I learned that originally by looking into the backstory of the original case from the movie The Exorcist. And what I found was that in that movie, many of the priests involved in the original case appeared in the movie as actors. And they were there to ensure the authenticity of what the church did. The rest of the movie they weren't concerned with. The authenticity of the rest of the story, not their problem. The authenticity of how the church handled it, they completely owned. So if you actually go back and watch The Exorcist, I think it's three or four of the priests in that movie are actually Jesuit priests playing themselves during the original case that the story was based on. It's pretty wild. That's fantastic. And I do know that having done some work with people who are, for one reason or another, have had issues with their own personal family trying to like either do the whole pray, pray the gay away kind of a thing or, the, or similar matters... Um, where they try to get an exorcism involved, they either could or couldn't. I know that the family's personal relationship with the Jesuits was often a key factor, which sparked my interest because that was a common thread. Mm -hmm. and, and it's actually, that kind of thing is more common with modern American Protestants, the whole praying the gay away or being gay is a demon, so let's exorcise that demon. Yeah. They have a different definition of demon than raw Catholic Jesuits do. Um, however, Jesuits are very practical. If they believe that a person believes they're possessed, and in their professional opinion, an exorcism will relieve them of that stress, anxiety, and mental construct, they'll do the exorcism. They'll tell everyone around them that they're doing it for psychiatric reasons, but they won't tell the person suffering from the possession that. Because what they're out to do is heal their followers. They're, they're out to raise them up and help them be the best they can be. And I can't do anything but back that. But again, there's a pragmatism to the Jesuits, a scholarly pragmatism of, yes, we're going to do this exorcism because Jane believes she's completely possessed. And that'll give us the room to get her into therapy and on medication. People aren't used to the idea of priests thinking like that, but believe me, there are many that do. And the ones that are qualified the highest tend to be part of the, the Jesuit arm of the Catholic Church. And they tend to be very, very good at what they do. And I think that's the main thing that sets the history of exorcisms in America apart from elsewhere. Well, in America, we have a major difference. In America, we have the practice of exercising concepts. So there's exorcisms uh, to get the adultery out. There's exorcisms to get the gay out. There's exorcisms to get the sickness or the illness or the chronic disease out. The Catholics don't do that. The Catholics look at it as a spiritual experience. They look at it as an event between two spiritual beings. But you can find American Baptists who have exorcised the cancer out of somebody or exorcised the gay out of somebody or at least believe they did. Which is very interesting that there's such a very specific version of what exorcism can and can't do. Can we do in an episode States. on possession one day? Uh, yeah, we totally could. But um, going back to 
the idea of uh, the definition of what exorcism can and can't do. I find that incredibly fascinating about how that can coincide in America alongside the whole speaking in tongues, American re- revivalism. Right, which as someone who's not Christian, if I saw you speaking in tongues, my first move would be to suss out how to perform the exorcism and get that thing out of you. Because <laughs> obviously you ain't right. He's like, shit, strap him down. No, um... But the, um... Well, that's, you know, when you say strap them down, you also bump into something that a lot of people don't see, but let's stay with the Afrocentric cultures. Now let's go to Jamaica. Yeah, that's a whole... I would not strap down there. Um, Jamaica is the place where the exorcism involves beating the body or torturing the suspect. Or, well, not suspect, torturing the subject. Yeah, I've definitely had some moonshine. <laughs> Torturing the subject until they are no longer a hospitable environment for the demon. And that's not uncommon in Central American cultures. It's less common in African cultures. Um, I'm going to make a statement that a lot of people are going to be up in arms about, but the African cultures tend to be more highly evolved in how they deal with the sociological components of their religion than the South and Central American cultures. And I think it's just a matter of how their societies evolved and what they had to adapt to. But slavery gave the African American cultures something they didn't just had to adapt to, they had to resist, they had to fight to maintain their own cultures and their own reality and their own belief systems. And that's not something, luckily, that the Central American cultures really experienced much. So there's a, a difference introduced there, and I think that's why New Orleans voodoo is very different than African voodoo. I actually, since I have such a failing with knowing the a, a whole lot about either, I would love to try and get a good survey of the two of them. Could you know any, like, uh, good I, examples? I have people who could do that. Do you know, like, any... Um, like for, for right now, for you personally, do you know anything that you could like just give us a quick like side by side comparison, um, just so that we could have this kind of a flavor of that? No, but it can give you more context. Okay. In the southeastern U.S., you have voodoo and you have hoodoo, and hoodoo. To put it in a way that's going to piss some of your audience off is the white people version of it. Hoodoo is the collection of superstitions and practices and sympathetic magics that have evolved among people that we in the Northeast tend to think of as stupid Southern poor white trash, which is probably the dumbest thing we could do. Um, You look at the Southeastern cultures and all the way up through the Appalachian cultures, and these people are not stupid. They are not spiritually poor and they are absolutely not trash they have a deep deep mythic system based on a huge collection of superstitions that rules their day to day practices not their religion but their spiritual practices in New Orleans you're going to be more prone to adapting the ritual you're going to be less prone to sticking to the script and the formula, the recipe that we talked about earlier. You're going to be more prone to incorporating aspects from other faiths or religions or belief systems or superstitions. In Africa, you are going to stick to that formula. You are going to do things the way that things have always been done for the last five fucking thousand years. Because who are you to change it? And I think, like, a big issue here is that so many people assume that the word superstition or superstitious is a negative word. It absolutely is not. We're ruled by superstitions all the time. And whether or not you acknowledge it or identify it. And anything can evolve into one. Always parking on a certain side of the street. Because the other side of the street is the one that gets cleaned more often in Manhattan could eventually evolve into this is the luckier side of the street to park on it's it's 
simple. Like superstitions evolve out of simple pragmatic things. They loop back into simple pragmatic things. And um, since eventually we have to transition back to there, and we briefly started to, um, simple superstitions, um, simple habits, in the more nor northern tradition, since we started to go there, in terms of uh, possession, there's a lot of practical aspects to Hornscape and um, Asatru, but we're not really going to touch on that today. And we're going to touch on Asatru a lot more than I think you think. Okay, well, I mean... Because by comparing the two, I can give people more of a, an understanding of both. That that would be helpful. If that's going to be your method, then I'm all for it. Um, I will state my bias. I have my own preference, obviously. Hey, the show starts with a disclaimer. That's that's fine. But <laughs> I think it it's a good having the Asatru and Fornsev together as things you can compare, and then compare them to outside religions and modern religions. I think tends to give people a lot more context than just talking about either one of them dry. Yeah. But um, practical, everyday methodology, because this is another religion and definitely a pantheon where you aren't going to want to directly interact with the pantheon. Yeah, well, that's the thing. In the northern religions, so on my mom's side of the family, I'm used to Santeria. You want to directly interact with the pantheon. You want to have a direct experience of them in you. In the northern religions... You want to acknowledge the Pantheon, you want to be respectful of the Pantheon, and for the most part, you do not want to fuck with the Pantheon at all. You want to talk to the people who are the people of the Pantheon. pantheon and those people make sacrifices to be in the position that they're in. One of the things that I hate in Northern religions is people who refer to themselves as priests or high priests or Gothi or Githia. If you fully understand the historical context and the way it was thought about in the time period when it was practiced, that is not a title that you would want to seek. And in modern day terms, when that title is used, more often than not it's used by somebody who's seeking influence over others or who thinks that defines their life. In period context, and when I say in period context, I mean in the original time period these things were practiced. In period context, the Gothi or the Githia was usually the person who was, and those mean priest in English, by the way, was usually the person who was hosting the ritual at their home at their expense. At that time. Right. It wasn't a title that went from year to year or season to season on the shoulders of one person. It was temporary. Right. So there's a big difference between Fornsev and Asadru. What I've just described is the way that Fornsev handles it. In Asadru, you tend to have a codified priest or priestess, a Gothi or a Githia. And in my opinion, that's one of the downfalls of Asadru. You're relying on one person to be the source of everything spiritual, where in Fornsev we rely on each other. And I'm not here to shit-talk anybody. I'm explaining what makes one work for me while the other doesn't. Other people, people in your audience, will need a spiritual authority. So being in an Alsatru kindred where there is a Gothi or a Githia who is at the head of the thing spiritually may be the most productive thing for them. That may be the best thing for them. It's not for me. We should talk about the Irish folk religions one day. Oh, yeah. Because there's... And that's actually something I don't think people listening to this would expect. But in order to understand my own roots, I had to spend a lot of time understanding how they overlapped with the Irish and the Gaelic. Well, we could talk about that, um, or at least touch on that, especially since I want to talk about ancestor worship. Yeah, because there was a big cultural interchange there. I mean, people forget or don't realize that Dublin was a Viking city. Yeah. And this is not a culture where we set up trading posts. This is a culture where we influenced them, they influenced us, and we all lived together. Yeah. So it was a different, you know, we integrated. 
we integrated instead of forcing people to integrate with northern european cultures we integrated in yeah um, and well i mean like let's well, let's backtrack a little slightly like well let's backtrack to your first question because it actually connects there okay there's a a split in our perspective on gods we have two distinct pantheons yeah we have the Ysert and the vanner now, there are theories out there that the Vanner, the Vanek Pantheon, was actually the original Irish Pantheon. And mythologically, we describe a war, an occupation, and a trading of hostages for peace between the two pantheons, and then giving both pantheons primacy. And historically, the Irish describe that as a secular process. So it is quite possible, though not proven yet, that the Vanek Pantheon is just derived from the older Irish Pantheon. And there's a point of integration where the two of them were considered equally valid, and therefore the mythology changed to fit it. Yeah. And, um, which you'd said before we started recording, that would definitely go to the point with, um, the flavor of the religion, which, and who you worship and how you worship would change very much, not just because, not just from uh, 20 miles to 20 miles, but because you weren't likely to travel 60 miles mm-hmm. in your lifetime. And that's the thing, you know, you, you didn't have planes, trains, and automobiles. So we're talking about religions that vary from village to village. A village is more of a keep or a holding. And that holding is going to be 20, 30, 40, 60, 80 miles from the next one. There's going to be minor and major variations in how things are practiced, especially on the day-to-day, that you may not see in your lifetime because 60 miles is outside of the range that you would travel in an entire lifetime in that time period. So the so just go back a little bit. I know that when most people think of the of the Nordic pantheon, they're thinking of like some very specific people, which. Well, well all right. so we've there. had 11 different comic books, we've had four animated series, most of that is the output of Marvel. Yeah. Now, that's going to be the version that most people are familiar with. Which is very Greco-Roman. Yeah. It's not very Norse at all. Um, but yes, you have Thor, you have Odin, you have Freyr, Freya, Loki. Loki's a big character because he's always a catalyst for the stories, but yeah, not necessarily the biggest religious figure. Um, yeah, we're used to seeing that for Marvel. We're used to seeing it in modern media and in mass media, and we're used to seeing it played out in different metaphors. But, you know, those things have been modernized over and over and over again across the years. What you see in the modern Marvel universe and what you see in a lot of modern treatments of the stuff is, yes, it's very Greco-Roman. They're taking Thor and they're putting him in Apollo's role. They're taking Odin and they're putting him in Zeus's role. Zeus and Odin are not similar. (laughs) (laughs) Very not similar. Um, Yeah, no. The father of lies would not not be down with all that Greco-Roman stuff. Mm. Um, I'd say, if anything, Hermes would probably get along better with Odin. Yeah. A lot better. Yep. But, yeah, so there's, there's a difference in terms of the pantheon, and it's a huge pantheon. It's a very very big pantheon most pantheons top out at nine to twelve gods entities beings whatever you want to call them main playing team right (laughs) and i guess yeah we have our first string that falls into that nine to twelve but if you look at the second and third string suddenly you're numbering in the 60s and the 80s and it gets complex and twisted and very hard to deal with and most people never bother instead where most people put their time is their ancestors. And one of the biggest differences between this and a quote-unquote modern religion is, I don't want to call it ancestor worship, but there is a degree of reverence given to ancestors, and there's a degree of primacy given to ancestors. It is much more likely in foreign set that somebody is going to make an offering or an appeal to their ancestors than to the gods directly. And if they have to interact with the gods, they will probably ask their ancestors who have crossed before to do it for them. They're actually like an intermediary. This, yes. Um, like hero cults, 
the same way that a lot of like old school Catholics deal with saints. Yes, except in this case, it's more similar to modern pagans in that that particular aspect of the religion is matrilineal. So there is a concept of dis or deser, which is your female ancestors prior to you, your mother, your grandmother, her mother, her mother after that, and so on back to the beginning of time. It's almost like they knew about mitochondrial DNA or something. But your deezer are always there, and they have an influence on your destiny, your fate, your luck, and your relevance. The males? Meh. Hit or miss. The females are typically always revered and assumed to be in attendance to everyone's lives that they're related to. Like so, own, your own personal set of fates. Yes. And you very much see that. So... That that first, that raw concept of Deezer is more important than talks about gods or higher powers for most people, especially when it comes to modern heathens. Now, again, you can get into the distinction, the difference between Fornsad and Asatru. Um, modern Asatru, some people don't even bother with the Deezer. Hardcore reconst Reconstructionist Asatru, they do. In Fornsad, they're primary. They're the first place you go. So it's a it's a good mapping of the differences between the three. I don't think one's more valid than the others. I think it's a matter of the primary approach or the root approach yeah. that influences everything else that you do later on being slightly different in all three. Yeah, which it's a butterfly effect kind of a thing. Whichever methodology is um, just kind of works better for you to. To make to make that that connection, yeah, and you I want can to see it. the mindset where some people might want to cut all of that and go directly to their ancestral gods. That's yeah. that makes sense to me. Yeah. It's not the way we do it. It's not the way it was typically done in period ever by anyone. Okay, that was a little harsh. Like I have, you've seen my tattoo. I have yeah. a tattoo on my back of a symbol called a vault nut. Maybe we can throw it in like the show notes or something. Yeah, but it's specifically attributed to Odin. It's Odinic. It's not just the concept of life, death, and rebirth, but also the concept of giving, taking, and gifting. And the exchanges that go on between life, death, and rebirth. So you wear a mark like that in Odin's name if you're willing to have a glorious and epic fucking life. That is short and will end in something maniacal. <laughs> Now, I'm willing to make that trade. I don't recommend that trade, ever. I don't recommend that trade to any of my own people. Um, it's kind of like a kamikaze tat. Yeah. It's, you know, like is a little bit of everything. And I guess if we're going to talk Pantheon, the Allfather is a great place to start. But the Allfather has over a hundred names. And Allfather is one of the later ones. Father of Lies is one of the earlier ones. Glad of War is one of the earlier ones. So, you know, you've got a, an entity or a being that you're describing with a hundred different aspects, a hundred different discrete canons, which is what we call those, those particular names or epithets. And, you know, you get a lot of people that focus on just one thing. He's the All-Father. He's like the Holy God. No, well, you're obviously a convert. <sighs> um, I've heard comparisons to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. No. No, read the mythology, no. Um, but that idea, you know, that blanket term of the all-father is enough for people to take and run with. That blanket term, father of lies, is enough for people to take and run with. If you were to describe Odin, you would describe someone who was wise above morality. And that's very hard for us to grasp. There is an order and a purpose to the universe and everything in it. But in order to fulfill that purpose, it has to seek its fate. Preordained little things along the way. Road markers, if you will. Things that have to happen. Not a life described in lines of code like 10, get up in the morning, 20, put on slippers, 30, go pee. Not like that. But at some point, this is going to happen. At some point, you're going to marry this woman. At some point, you're going to be here at this time. That sort of prophecy is very much Odin's wheelhouse. Odin will manipulate reality using any means necessary to see that happen. 
and I mean any means necessary because wisdom above morality. He's in a place where good and evil are not issues. Light and dark are not necessarily different. And that's something different from gods in most pantheons. And I think very much when you look at Judeo-Christian views on things, it's completely alien that you have this being that is above morality and is going to manipulate all of reality to see to a certain end the continuity of his own people, regardless of morality. That's not what, what Westerners look for in gods nowadays. It is what Westerners looked for in gods back then. And it says something to, I think, both the evolution of the culture and the dumbing down of the intellectual mindset when it comes to spirituality. We've disconnected intellectualism from spirituality. And that's stupid. The scholarly approach to the spiritual is probably going to be the most fruitful given what we have in front of us. Things like source materials, archaeology, literature, all of that. So why disconnect the two? Why... Why separate science from spirituality when you can apply them to each other? You may come up with something that's only valid for you personally, but the exploration will have gone forward. And that idea of the exploration going forward individually was very common in period and something that we've kind of lost today. So it's something Fornseth tries to recreate and tries to live by. So if you're talking about daily practices... The practices tend to be more along those lines than a daily devotion or a daily prayer or anything like that. It's, what more can I learn today? How much extra credit homework can I do to figure out something that I wasn't clear on? Is there something we can clarify that nobody else has touched yet? Introspective brownie points. Yes. Yeah. Yes, very much so. And a direct responsibility to your own ancestors as symbolized by your mother figures, your female ancestors, your visa. And actually... That was good. <laughs> Pat on the back. I hit three points, closed back to the beginning, and fucking everything. All right, More booze. <laughs> yeah, all right, good. <laughs> a little round of applause. Was that what you wanted? Yes, a little round of applause there for our guest. He gets a cookie. Oh, the full moon's out. Yeah, it is. It is. It very much is. All right. I haven't slept in 36 hours. Yep. Hopefully right. they haven't killed a rabbit. <laughs> All right, so uh, Mr. Werewolf over here has gone from Squeakum's A Nani Mouse to Mr. Werewolf in the course of like three recordings. <laughs> um, hey, Nani Nani. Tell uh, me you know the reference. Vaguely. Your education is lacking. <laughs> Probably. Dear sir, you do not know your Shakespeare. You are unqualified to be in the room with me. Shut up. Let's finish your toke. Let's get back to All the... these outward signs of woe. Maternal goddesses. Hey, nonny, nonny. You failed, sir. <laughs> Prostrate yourself in the corner and write the following... No, everything's Hamlet. <laughs> 500 times. Everything's Hamlet. Much Ado About Nothing is no. the center of the universe. No, everything... Much Ado About Nothing is the center of the universe. <laughs> really? Much Ado About Vagina? That's your favorite one? <laughs> you? Yes. <laughs> I played Benedict twice. Oh, nice. He's the most me Shakespeare character, and he's the ultimate male and a misogynist, which is really twisted for a gay guy, but it's it's the way it worked out. Yeah. <laughs> I need to find it, but I'd come up with a really inane proof that every single Shakespeare, except for Titus Andronicus... Which w probably wasn't written by Shakespeare. That every single one of them was essentially the same thing as Hamlet. Alright, my <laughs> theory was that they were all Hamlet or Midsummer. They were all Hamlet or Midsummer Night's Dream. Midsummer Night's Dream is just a sarcastic Hamlet. Midsummer Night's Dream to me was a metaphorical much ado. No, I'm sorry. Same amount of unnecessary, like, tongue-in-cheek melodrama. Same like, instead of body count, you've got people just, like, sleeping with each other. It's still just, like, it's still Hamlet. 
It's all just Hamlet. It's all Hamlet. Somebody call Kenneth Branagh. <laughs> Get him to take over the podcast while we go do Hamlet. <laughs> we, everything is Hamlet. <laughs> I I disagree. No, it's... I think one should learn at a young age how to get Baraccio to bang the serving wench in front of a window to confuse thine enemies. <laughs> or kill your girlfriend's father and hide him behind a curtain. Or kill yourselves in front of your girlfriend's father and hide it behind a curtain. Or don't let Gertrude push you in a lake because she's a crazy bitch. Or don't let Gershwin reinterpret Shakespeare. It's not American. It shouldn't be. All right. How did we go down this road? <laughs> uh, okay. Go on. Hamlet. Uh, mm, Frigga. All right. <laughs> Start Frigga. Friggin, oh. friggin' Hamlet. Friggin' Hamlet. All right. <laughs> Speaking of varying types of female figures. Oof. Frigga is not the best place to start with a modern audience. No, I know, but I wanted to make the friggin' Hamlet joke. Okay. <laughs> um, because there is such a emphasis on who, on who your, your female uh, relatives were, that's it why... It doesn't I, directly translate to the pantheon, though. If I was going to go to a, a a female that fit the pantheon in modern day terms, that comes up to a lot, it would be Freya. Yeah. And so, she's got a lot of who she like who she is today. I know is different. Well, I mean, also like changed from region to region. So I. Could, but if you want to go down into if we go back to that theory about the Celtic pantheons and the Proto English stuff being connected to the North stuff, North stuff mythologically. Freya may be the root of what Wiccans call the goddess on the Irish side. Freya is a Vanic deity. She's part of the Vanner, which is the other pantheon. Um, the way I describe it to our own people is, it's like pork. It's the other white meat. It's Maybe. no more or less meat. It's just the other white meat. And I don't mean white meat. Am I allowed to start quoting Jonathan Swift now? Yes, <laughs> but I'm gonna I'm gonna make a side note here, which is that I have friends who are of African American descent who practice foreign south. Uh-huh. You're going so in a I, different direction. All right, let's keep. Going. I just want to throw that out there. There's a lot of people in this world who think that because this is an ancestral religion, it's locked into a certain set of bloodlines. That's simply false. In the time period where these things were practiced predominantly, most of the people that we encountered socially that became part of our communities converted. Now, here's an interesting side note. Not all of them did convert. The ones who did not convert and their gods were honored equally. I think that's a great example. I think that's something important to bring to the modern day discussion. Yeah. Because all too often I hear people talk about this as an ancestral faith that is therefore white. And honestly, that's bullshit. That's not the way it worked in period. <laughs> nope. Having your having your slaves, your wards, your other household members, people who emigrated to your town, either adopting your religion or being or being cool with their religion getting integrated into your community that's a very pre-christian thing i i saw that a lot studying the roman empire yeah. studying not so much studying greece because it uh, wasn't was tolerance far, but, tolerance yeah, yeah. is a step down from what they did yeah they actively honored each other by honoring each other's faiths yeah it's a matter of uh spiritual community building yes uh, valhalla is super ingrained in everyone's mindset. Yeah, especially we were talking about after Mad Max. We live, we die, we live again. And you can just shove that world up. British. <laughs> you can just shove that idea of Valhalla up your ass, essentially. Yeah, because, because it has it's nothing not. to do with it. Valhalla was a place where certain select warriors who were half of the chosen fallen in battle got to go. The idea that everybody goes to Valhalla is very new. And frankly erroneous if you look at the mythology and the actual practice and period most people died in place if you wanted to go speak to your dead ancestors you had to go to their burial mounds there was no concept of a non-local post-mortem spirit 
In fact, their word for ghost translates to the modern zombie, not the modern ghost. They didn't really have a word for ghost. So the idea that we all die and go to Valhalla, no, no. Mythologically, when Odin consecrates a battle, or when someone consecrates a battle to either Odin or Freya, half of the fallen in battle from the chosen side, quote-unquote our side, are allowed to go to the halls of Valhalla. There they eat and drink and make merry, and then they fight and practice and die, and then the next morning they're resurrected and they do it all again. The other half of those chosen, first pick of the litter, so to speak, actually go to Freya. And that's something that gets left out entirely, the fact that Freya gets first pick of the fallen in battle. <laughs> People, like, know to connect her with the Valkyries, but they don't... But they don't fully yeah. understand that she is a war goddess. She is not the maiden or the mother or the crone. She is the beginning, the end, the judgment, and the retribution. Very different concept than what we typically think of in female deities. Those quantities, those traits, are not things that we typically call female. But the reality is they're very female. And you see in Norse mythology when it comes to the relationships between the female side of the pantheon and the male side of the pantheon, that they are very much of equal but different power. But they are also, on both sides, very capable of replicating and assuming the other side's power. There's nothing that's as strictly male or strictly female as what you find in modern paganism. There's not that enforced dichotomy. To bring it to a practical side, um, Odin was a practitioner of Seether and Spey, which are what you would consider magic, but they're forms of practice that were typically reserved for the women, yet the Allfather, I love that word because it makes him sound like the highest of gods, is doing that too. He's, he's exercising his feminine aspect, and that idea was controversial from the 50s until now, but back then it was a matter of personal choice. Um, they made fun of you for being girly, not for expressing your feminine aspect. And there's a, a, a distinction to be made there that I think gets left out a lot in modern stuff where it's just strictly male, strictly female, and it's this enforced dichotomy. And um, The creaking you hear is my chair as I rock back and forth because I'm a little bit anxious because there's a microphone in my face. No, no, let them all think it's your old man creaky bones because we'd already established. <laughs> Get off my lawn! Yeah, no, I'm, I'm like half bloodhound, half vulture. You're a creaky old man. We've already discussed the visuals for the audience. They they're already have this in their head. Don't ruin it. <laughs> we are an old man... With a scraggly beard and one eye. And a young man who happens to have the head of a jackal. <laughs> and we both work in medicine. Anubis. Um, Here, let me rip your heart out and throw it on this scale. Listen, it's how we determine your copay. I don't make the rules. <laughs> your insurance company does. All right, let's... Enough the, enough the American healthcare system. Let's move on to <laughs> exactly a similar topic, actually. With expressing um, feminine aspects of oneself, taking care of your kindred and the village and how you'd evoke a higher power or what higher powers you'd connect to. Since that's a part of practical sides of the religion that I know that a lot of people would probably be very interested Everyone, when they think about whether it's a Satru Fonsidith or any Norse religion... We're, We're all heathens. Yeah. You know, the distinction is great for making comparisons so that people understand things better, but we're all heathens. Don't, don't forget that. But any heathen religion, people always think about, like, the super military aspect or the super, like, yeah. death or glory aspect. They don't think about the healing, the... the there are, and there were other gods in the pantheon. How do you have a society survive when it has to support that many warriors? Well, you need really good medicine. You need really wise healers. You need people who can handle things when they're off to war. Hell, can I go back to the male-female aspects? I was hoping we you would. Before? So that's a great example. Viking is a verb. 
And uh, I want to clarify that so the audience understands that Viking is something you do, not something you are. I'm using that as a verb now. Yeah, it's a big... No, I'm using it badly as a verb now. <laughs> now I'm going to go it's Viking. It's your lifestyle. You're going to the grocery store? Yes. But that's what you did. You went Viking. You went raiding, pillaging, freebooting around the country trying to raid money. It was a particular trade, a particular profession. They were land pirates. You weren't a Viking. You were someone who went to Viking. And starting from there, you have to understand that, you know, Viking was a trade. Viking was a profession. Somebody's got to support that, just like somebody's got to support coal miners or steel workers or professional soldiers. So you had this whole other class of people that was patching these guys up, feeding them, taking care of them, making sure they had optimal performance that doesn't get glorified in comic books and movies, but was equally important to the culture and to individual people back then. Um, another place that I love to make that distinction is shield maidens. When you say Viking shield maiden, most people think beautiful woman who holds your shield because they have this concept of the time period that's derived from the Anglo-Saxons. We were not English. Shield. Primary weapon. Sword, secondary weapon. Stop and digest that for a minute. You're dealing with a shield that's half the size of your body, round, and has a handle in the center that allows it to pivot. Or a stick in your hand that has dull blades on either side. While it might be cool to swing the stick, you have this massive tank-like object that you can manipulate through the battlefield to really fuck people up. The edge of the shield and the center of the shield where you could punch with it were typically used as a primary weapon in period, not the sword. The sword is what was used when you came too close and were behind the shield effectively. So a shield maiden was a female who sometimes was running around with her boobs hanging out feeding a baby, who was completely capable of maiming, decapitating, and splitting in half any enemy, regardless of gender, who came for her or her family. This is very different from that English conception of a woman in a dress holding your shield for a night. And I just want everybody who's got all those ideas of the Captain America boomerang action to stop it. Stop it. Shield throwing didn't happen, but damn, they were really... They had finesse with actually using the shield as the primary weapon. And uh, it's unfortunate that in modern-day recreations of combat arts like the SCA... Um, the Armored Combat League, and a few other organizations. Nobody actually does that because the rules treat the shield as a shield. They treat it as a barrier. They treat it as a defensive thing, not a weapon. And I'd love to see that open up so that people could actually show ancestral combat styles. Shield only fighting. Yeah, uh, that was not uncommon. No. A lot of times the shield was the primary weapon and the sword was still in the sheath. That would be amazing to see uh, a tournament with that. Mm-hmm. Let my nerd flag fly, because I never do that on this show. If you'd like, for the show notes, I can give you a couple YouTube videos of people with doctorates in this type of thing, reconstructing how it was done then. Oh, yeah. I'll definitely post that. And visually, it's it's something that you've never seen before. It's something that you don't see in movie fight scenes or sword fights. It's, It's not King Arthur. It's brutally effective, though. You used the perfect word there to describe it earlier. Tank. Mm-hmm. On your hand, or yes. on your arm. Yes. That's what you're whipping around. That there. covers half your body and is capable of flipping to either side. So, whichever half isn't protected can be protected in a split second. But uh, again, we got a bit away from what I was trying to get towards. The Everybody has very well cemented I'm good at in their that. mind. One of Odin's cannings is flight of words. <laughs> well, everyone has very well easily cemented in their mind the whole idea of. Um, the, the warrior aspect of the pantheon and the culture. So let's look at the opposite of the warrior, and I think that's hopefully where I started. I don't know. That I'm, is where, uh, that is it's where you It's called start. drinks with God. I am definitely drinking to get close to my gods. So yeah, yeah, you've yeah. got these warriors out there, and it's a seasonal job. You're getting on a ship. You're going to foreign countries, and you're attacking these people who worship this god that we call the White Christ. And um, the thing about these people that's unique is they like small, ornate, expensive things and portable stuff like gold. 
For some reason, they make the candlesticks on their altars out of gold and silver. For some reason, they make cups and bowls out of gold and silver. Like, this makes any sense. So... That's just for spending, not for drinking out of Exactly. So if you're going to go steal something, it should probably but be what you can bang back down into currency. <laughs> and that's exactly what they did. What happened when they were away doing that? Well, there's a lot of things that we know that we pick out, especially from Icelandic law in period, that we have really good records of, that people would not expect. So, for instance, men under that type of law very typically did not carry money. Their women did because while they were off a Viking, their women had to run the household and the homestead and the property and the people that went with it. So you've got 100 people, 60 people under your care. Your husband is away making money, which is awesome. You've got to actually run the show, though. So you find these traditions where men did not carry keys. That's a very Icelandic one. Men did not carry keys. Keys were something that belonged to women. Women were there year-round running the show. Men had all sorts of things they did, and they varied seasonally. So it made no sense for men to be running around with keys to grain stores, keys to food stores, keys to weapons dumps. It, it just didn't make sense. Now, I said keys to weapons dumps on purpose. This creates a place where the female has a massive amount of influence, and keys to weapons dumps is a literal example. If you decided you were going to go a Viking against a people or an enemy or a group, and your wife said no, good luck getting in there. <laughs> and I know that also when uh, you came back from a Viking, you still needed to be on good terms. Who do you think the accountant was? <laughs> These are all the babies that were born. This is what's happened to our herds. This is what happens to our fields. This is what we've hunted. This is what's in our stores. What did you bring me? This is where <laughs> I'm going to insert the song, uh, Bitch Better Have My Money. <laughs> <laughs> Um, basically it though yeah no it, it's it's just how things ran yeah it just it organized well it happened to organize well and it worked out for a long period of time and it w and there was a fully functional society that's separate from the whole raiding party which everyone knows about and gl and glorifies because other cultures wrote about it right so we have, because they were know, famous because they raped and pillaged other cultures Every culture and, raped and pillaged at some point. Yeah. But, and, yeah. you know, whether we did it or we didn't do it, I don't have any... I don't have any pride in that, and I don't have any misgivings about it. It's just something that happened historically. Yeah. And, as, as you said, it's something that most cultures have done. At some point in their evolution, most cultures have done it. We did it in a way that was different. More modern cultures tend to do it in a way that leads to colonization. We didn't, necessarily. Ireland being a glaring example of the opposite. We very much integrated in Ireland, as opposed to just colonizing like the British do. You know, because that's, that's what most people are familiar with. Um, we tended to bring people back home with us. We tended to, through a very healthy slave trade, actually, bring people back home and integrate them into our culture. For people who are also super excited and jazzed about either of the um, the religious paths that we've uh, we've discussed, what would your, your pointers be? There for... aren't very many good books if you go outside of the scholarly works. Um, if it was published by a company called Llewellyn, avoid it. If it was published by a mass market press, probably avoid it. Most of the really good material that you can find is going to be in scholastic enterprises. You're going to find great papers on, not necessarily Santeria, but Afrosyncratic and Voodoo religions by a guy named Wade Davis out of New York University. You're going to get more out of that than reading something off the shelf that you found in an occult bookstore. If you're talking about Fornsev or Ausatru uh, or anything in the Northern traditions, you're going to get much more by reading... The Road to Hell by H. R. Ellis Davidson, which was, a, I believe, her doctoral thesis, or anything by Professor Neil Price out of Aberdeen, then you're going to get from something mass market. 
I would say in both cases, it's hard, but you have to start with the homework. You have to start with a root understanding of the culture and the time period that these things originated in before you can move forward and adapt it for yourself today. And both religions are religions that are going to have homework. You can't really avoid it unless you want to start taking shots in the dark, which I do not recommend with either faith, particularly if you're going to get into the magical aspects. Whoa, is me. I definitely uh, appreciate the, the many, many <laughs> recording sessions that we've been having to get this all together. This is definitely going to be a two-parter. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. And... Um, Going to throw in all those uh, various links to things that we've been discussing in the description. I continue to try and be wise as long as you continue to bring me booze. <laughs> well, that is a that is what we encourage here. <laughs> Drunken scholastic enterprises. You know, I the show is called Drinks with God. I would love to be able to get drunk with one of my gods. Oh, oh yeah. At least you know, in recorded mythology, mine get hammered a lot, and things happen. Some of them good, some of them bad. Most of them just strange. My favorite one that I love to just bring up whenever I can, Loki is like, hey, Thor, put on this dress. We're yes. <laughs> you know, if you want a good treatment on Norse mythology, I would highly recommend Neil Gaiman's Norse mythology. It's written in his voice. The The myths that he used and the way he portrayed them are completely authentic, but they're written by a storyteller for a modern age. So that's a, a great book to give you an idea of where we're coming from with all this stuff on the Norse side. Yeah, I'm going to definitely put ISBN numbers to all these in the in the description. It's even better as an audiobook. Like, if you do do it, you get the audiobook, because to hear him read it and actually go full storyteller is totally worth the time. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Whenever an author, like, narrates their own work, that's... Unless you can get a really good um, actor to jump on in there. Yeah, yeah, it depends on who does it, but, you know, in his case, he's very much the storyteller. So, just having that tape where you have the opportunity to let him tell you the story is totally different than the experience of reading the book, and I've done both. And I love audiobooks, but most of them, you use the right word, they're narrated. This one is not narrated. It's a storyteller telling a story. It's a totally different thing. Well, uh, again, um, thank you. Um, and would you want anyone to reach out to you with questions? They could do so through me. If um, they went unless through you, have you a... and you were willing to pre-screen them, fine. But as a general rule, no. Yeah, no, I know that you're... Not to disrespect your audience, but this is something very personal to me. And it's something very important to me. If you've reached a point in your life where you think you're there, you think you have an understanding of it and you give it the gravity then, okay, reach out and we'll talk. I may then come back to you with a list of things to check out while I'm doing something else. I may have a conversation with you. I'm not trying to be a bastard. It's a core, private part of my life. And I guess as a final note, I'll give you a big concept in all of Norse theology. We have an inner yard or an inangag and an outer yard, or an utengar, which are descriptors for everything in our lives. To put it in the context of the time period, the inner yard would be the inner hold, the keep, the castle itself. It would be you, your immediate family, those closest to them. What you needed to function, what you needed to maintain, what you needed to be able to evolve, all in one place, Held and held up and held firm and guarded by everyone there. Then you would have the outer yard. It would be the larger keep in medieval terms. It would be the village that came up around you. And in that outer yard would be things equally important, but much less personal to you. In that yard is where the audience falls for me. I encourage the audience to think about what their inner yard is, what's truly important, what they would fight for, and what their outer yard is, what they love, what holds them up, and what they seek to hold up. But in time of war, they would have to make that choice. And then, try and make both sides prosperous. Try and make both sides hospitable. Try and create a way that the two sides can interchange so that you have an inner yard and an outer yard that have very fluid borders. But, 
understand that we all have an inner yard that we guard, and my faith falls into mine. That's a definitely a good note to to end on. It's a distinct philosophy that you do find ever you do find everywhere, but I think that that's this is one of the few times yeah, we where we give it's a, a terminology and stuff, but and you'll find it in most faiths and most folk religions and most old long-standing traditions. Yeah. And it, it'll be in, it'll be like institutionalized but to different degrees. And I think it's very much a set part of how things operate with this uh with this faith. Yeah. yeah. Very much so. Yeah. So again, thank you very much for listening and uh you can find us on Facebook uh at Drinks with God. You can find us on Twitter at Drinks W God. Please subscribe to us on iTunes and to our Podbean page. Check out everyone else that are, it's on the podcast Jukebox Network. Um, you'll find links to everything there in the description. And you should definitely check out our Redbubble and buy some t-shirts. They th- say things like, ask me about my death anxiety and non fui fui, non sum, non curo. That is, of course... Latin for I was not, I have been, I am not, I do not care. And if you have had an alternative theological experience or can provide an in-depth viewpoint of mainstream religion, please email me at drinkingwithgod at gmail.com. I would love to talk to you. Thank you all and stay weird out there. You know what I mean when I-